Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass? So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Something rare and unexpected happened in Craighead County District Court in Jonesboro, Arkansas, on August 19, 2011, the repercussions of which still manifest today. Three men pleaded guilty to murder in that court while still asserting their innocence in a bizarre deal that allowed them to walk free that very day. Henry Clay once said, A good compromise is when both parties are dissatisfied. Well, That plea deal left an entire nation dissatisfied. These men were known as the West Memphis Three, and many years before that day, they had been found guilty and imprisoned for the violent and depraved murders of three eight-year-old boys. On May 5, 1993, three Cub Scouts, Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, were reported missing in West Memphis after not returning home. The next day, their nude bodies were found in a drainage canal. They'd been hogtied by their own shoelaces. Official cause of death was multiple injuries with drowning, the stuff of nightmares. This being the early 1990s, West Memphis police came to believe that due to the strange cruelty of the murders, the crime must be related to satanic cults. These were the days of the satanic panic when evangelical conservatives managed to convince a large portion of America that Satanists were everywhere and were recruiting kids through Dungeons and & Dragons and video games. It was, it was a whole thing. West Memphis police happened to know a local kid who dabbled in the occult, 18-year-old Damian Eccles. A high school dropout with a history of mental illness, Eccles palled around with 17-year-old Jesse Miss Kelly and 16-year-old Jason Baldwin. Eccles told his psychiatrist that he thought he could gain superhuman abilities by drinking blood. With little else to go on, police brought Eccles in for a polygraph. Though Eccles claimed no knowledge of the murders, the police examiner said he was being deceptive in his answers. I did an episode a couple years ago on 
the history of lie detectors and how unreliable they are, so give that a listen if you haven't. Suffice to say, they needed more to go on than one bad polygraph. Next, police pulled in Jesse Miss Kelly, who had a reported IQ of 72, which is low enough to be considered mentally disabled. They questioned the teenager for 12 hours, but only recorded about 46 minutes of the interrogation, the part where Miss Kelly confessed to the murders and said Eccles and Baldwin had participated as well. He would later claim that confession was coerced. No shit. Police promptly arrested the three young men. There's lots more nuance to this, of course, and their plight has been covered in several great podcasts, so if you want to know all about it, seek them out. In the end, they were found guilty and they all went to prison. Eccles was put on death row, and that's where their story would have ended, if not for two documentary filmmakers, Joe Berlinger and Bruce Sanofsky, who did a deep dive into the case for their film Paradise Lost. It was, in my recollection, the first true crime documentary that captured the attention of the national media in the way that Making a Murderer later would. The documentary tore apart the flimsy evidence used at trial and suggested a possible better suspect. Due to the success of Paradise Lost, the West Memphis Three became known all over the world and the public pushed to have the investigation reopened. In 2007, DNA from the crime scene was finally tested. None of the DNA matched Eccles, Baldwin, or Miss Kelly. A hair that appeared to be similar to one of the dead boy's stepfathers was found in a knot used to bind one of the victims. And still, the West Memphis Three remained in prison. Then, in 2011, after years of fighting, the state of Arkansas was ready to cut a deal. But they still didn't want to admit that they'd made a horrible mistake. So the prosecutor offered Eccles and his friends something called an Alford plea. A strange compromise between guilty and innocent. By taking the deal, they would plead guilty to the murders while still maintaining their innocence. If they did so, they would win their freedom, their sentence, time served. But they would have the guilty conviction on their records forever, and they wouldn't be able to sue the state for wrongful imprisonment. Eccles, Baldwin, and Miss Kelly took the deal and were released on August 19, 2011. But because they technically pleaded guilty, many still wonder if the West Memphis Three really did kill those boys. Damien Eccles is still fighting for his reputation and the truth. So what's up with this Alford plea? How did it come about? Who benefits when everyone is left unsatisfied? And is it really ethical to admit guilt for something you didn't do? This is the philosophy of crime. And I'm your host, James Renner. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices 
down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. The Alfred plea gets its name from Henry Alfred, a black man living in North Carolina at the height of the civil rights movement who was charged with murder in 1963. One night, Alfred visited a neighborhood house owned by another black man named Nathaniel Young. This was a kind of underground speakeasy, an off-the-books bar where anything goes. Alfred had brought with him a young white woman. After a couple drinks, Alfred used his last dollar to buy a couple hours in a room with the woman. But a short time later, Alfred decided he wanted to leave, and the woman didn't want to go with him. Nathaniel said she could stay, which angered Alfred. A scuffle ensued, and Alfred was chased off the property. Witnesses at Alfred's house later testified that he'd come back to get his gun. And as he left, he said he was going to kill Nathaniel. Later, he was seen returning, and he said he'd done it. In fact, Nathaniel was found dead, killed by a shotgun blast at his front door. Police arrested Alfred and charged him with first-degree murder. If he was found guilty of the crime, Alfred would be put to death. Even though this was as good a case as any prosecutor sees, the prosecutor understood that the state of North Carolina could save some money if they offered a plea deal to Alfred that could avoid a costly trial. So the prosecutor offered to lower the charge to second-degree murder with the possibility of 30 years in prison. Or he could take it to trial and risk getting the chair. Alfred's lawyer was no dummy, and he strongly recommended that he take the deal. But when it came time for Alfred to vocalize his guilty plea, things got complicated. Alfred pleaded guilty, but he didn't stop talking. I pleaded guilty because they said there is too much evidence, he told the judge, but I ain't shot no man. But I take the fault for the other man. We never had an argument in our life, and I just pleaded guilty because they said if I didn't, they would gas me for it. And that is all. I'm not guilty, but I plead guilty. The judge handed down the maximum sentence he could, 30 years in prison. Then Alfred appealed the ruling on the grounds that his plea was coerced in violation of his constitutional rights. A federal appeals court agreed, ruling that the plea was involuntary because it was motivated by the fear of the death penalty. So the state appealed to the Supreme Court, where the majority of the justices upheld Alfred's conviction. Supreme Court Justice Byron White spoke for the majority, stating that it was possible to accept guilt in court even if a person maintained their innocence, if the prosecution's case was overwhelming. And suddenly, the Alfred plea was law of the land. Alfred never did get out of prison. He died behind bars in 1975. Forty-seven years later, the Alfred plea remains, but neither side really likes it. The Alfred plea robs the state of a simple direct admission of guilt and robs the defense of restitution, when an innocent man goes to jail. Most judges don't like it either, as it makes a mockery of the entire purpose of the court, 
to ferret out the truth, the whole truth and nothing but the truth. Only 17% of inmates took an Alford plea. There's another problem, too. If an inmate enters an Alford plea and still goes to prison, they will eventually face a parole board for consideration of early release. And the biggest deciding factor for a parole board granting freedom is a sincere admission of regret. You can maintain your innocence to keep from being put to death, but you have to admit you did it if you ever want to be free again. This is the purgatory of the United States criminal system. Still, there are times when an Alford plea seems to be the smart move. If not for the Alford plea, the West Memphis Three would still be locked up. The state told them they had to lie to get out, you know, like a bully on a playground holding you in a headlock until you cry mercy. Which begs the question, is it ever ethically okay to lie? It's time to talk about a bit of philosophy called act utilitarianism. Remember Jeremy Bentham? He was that lunatic philosopher who thought up the panopticon, a new style of prison in which cells are arranged in a circle, such that they all face a central hub where guards stand behind tinted glass. At any time, they might be watching you, so you best behave. Bentham is also the father of utilitarianism, that branch of philosophy that believes society should maximize the happiness of its population. An offshoot called act utilitarianism states that an action should be considered morally right if it is the action that maximizes pleasure and the absence of pain for the greatest number of people. For instance, you have a choice to make this Saturday. You can stay in and play Elden Ring for five hours, or you can help your sister move. No doubt playing Elden Ring would give you pleasure, but helping your sister move would make her happy. And not just her, but also her husband and their kids and your mom, etc. The moral thing to do is to maximize happiness for the most people. So, you know, be like Jeremy Bentham and help your sister move. You know who was a big fan of act utilitarianism? Mr. Spock. In The Wrath of Khan, he tells Captain Kirk, the needs of the many outweigh the needs of the few. And in the end, spoiler alert here, Spock sacrifices himself to save the crew of the Enterprise, the ultimate display of act utilitarianism. Sounds like a good philosophy, doesn't it? Well, strict act utilitarianism can be problematic. See, act utilitarianism depends on the shifty definition of things like happiness and goodness. Who defines what is good? Who defines what makes a person happy? Well, in utilitarianism, the majority does. Always. And sometimes, because we are human, and only recently came out of the jungle, sometimes the majority can be fucking stupid. For instance, slavery in the United States. For a while, slavery in the South made many Southerners very happy. The slaves were the minority, so their will could be ignored for those who followed utilitarianism. By providing cheap labor, slaves made life pleasurable for plantation owners and the towns that used their goods. There is little concern for real justice in act utilitarianism. All that matters is whether the majority is pleased. Hitler, of course, took full advantage of this philosophy 
and it should be no surprise that a white guy thought it all up. Even Mr. Spock came around to understanding that sometimes act utilitarianism isn't the best solution to human issues. In The Search for Spock, the crew of the Enterprise puts their lives in danger just to save him, because he was their friend. And sometimes a single soul is worth it, maybe always, even if it brings some suffering with it. As Captain Kirk said, sometimes the needs of the one outweigh the needs of the many. But at least Bentham would have applauded the decision of the West Memphis Three for accepting the Alfred plea deal. There is no doubt it made their lives less painful. Eleven years after their release, how's free life working out for the West Memphis Three? Jesse Miss Kelly got engaged and enrolled in community college to train as an auto mechanic. He's the only one who didn't leave the immediate area where the murders occurred. Charles Baldwin moved to Seattle and took classes to become a lawyer with the goal of helping other wrongfully convicted people. But first, he had to learn how to drive. Damien Eccles moved to Salem, Massachusetts, the scene of another famous witch hunt, with his wife and wrote a memoir. He also wrote lyrics for a Pearl Jam song and has a website where he talks about practicing occult magic. As for the murders of Steve Branch, Michael Moore, and Christopher Byers, because of the Alford plea, it's technically a closed case, and the local police drag their feet whenever Eccles and his attorney try to find the real killer. When they asked the West Memphis police if they could test the evidence in the case, they were told it had been destroyed in a fire. So they got a court order in 2021 to see for themselves, and surprise, all the evidence is still there. The cops just kind of shrugged, I guess, and took another sip of coffee. Eccles and his team will now test the ligatures used to tie up the boys for DNA. And if the results definitively link another suspect to the murders, all of Eccles' struggles will be seen as an example of act utilitarianism because a clear answer will make many people very happy. The Philosophy of Crime is a Fearful Symmetry production. This episode was recorded by Jeff Koval at the State Level Recording Studio in Fairlawn, Ohio. It was produced and edited by William Mankey. I'm James Renner. If you enjoyed this episode, please check out my new weekly podcast, True Crime This Week. William Mankey also writes the music for this podcast. Look for his other creations, including Genius Dice, wooden dice that will give an artful twist to your gaming night, and his new Dueling Pints drinking game. It's rock, paper, scissors on a pint glass. Both are available on Amazon. Until next time, remember, there's a simple but challenging solution to the epidemic of crime. If everybody took the time to make good friends with their neighbors— we would know when someone needs our help before they become a statistic. Don't be fearful of the world. Make friends and make it better.